Hey, everybody. Welcome to You're Going to Die, the podcast. Welcome back. If you are joining us again, and thank you for that. And if you're joining us for the first time, welcome for the first time. Uh, For those of you that are joining for the first time, Whole30, I've been on it, you guys, for 23 days. And so that's your catch up if you haven't been listening to the previous episodes. But if you want to find out more details about about how that started and what that is, you can listen to the last episode with Alex Ebert of Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros. Definitely worth listening to for all those reasons. And if you want to hear a little more (laughs) of my story about the whole 30, y'all, I am a tiger blood bag of skin and bones. Yeah, no, I'm a skin bag of bone bundles. Uh, my energy's great, sleeping like I've never slept before. <laughs> I still have, you know, like sadness uh, and sorrow, but I think it's even out a little bit. I don't know. Last week was pretty tricky, but that's part of it, right? You're just faced with things. You can't eat or drink your way away from the stuff. So I'm feeling pretty good and glad to be here. Glad to be speaking to you into your little earballs and really excited to share this episode with you. I really can't wait. I just listened to the whole interview before doing this recording, which is what I try to do just to kind of like be with it. And it's, it's such a goodie. And I'm so grateful for this guest. So on today's episode, we have C.A. Conrad. So my introduction to C.A. was because of my coming across a collection called Poets on Death. And C.A. writes the introduction to this and and I believe is involved in kind of putting it all together. And I got this because of like most things, deathy, lots of people sent it to me. But finally, a special best friend in my life sent me this collection and then made a point of especially acknowledging C.A. Conrad being involved in the project. And so on that... I just reached out to CA. And so my the beginning of, of me knowing CA was because of this collection. And then emailing CA and having them write me back within a day with the best email that you want to get from somebody when you ask them if they want to do a podcast with you. And so that's just to say CA is wonderful. I am so glad for this episode because of how, how great it was to just be with CA an email CA. It's such a funny thing to get to the podcast and have that be, you know, it's the point, but there's just so much other cool stuff that happens for me at least and and Nick and us on the production side. But now it's yours and it feels extra good to have all the good stuff that leads up to it being yours. So C.A. Conrad has been working with the ancient technologies of poetry and ritual since 1975. They're the author of Amanda Paradise, which I'll talk about more a little later, and also 
CA will talk about, published by Wave Books this year. Other titles uh, from CA include The Book of Frank, While Standing in Line for Death, very obvious access point for me to be like, yeah, I probably should talk to CA. And then uh, Eco Deviance. It's another collection of work. They received a Creative Capital Grant, a Pew Fellowship, a Lambda Literary Award, and a Believer Magazine Book Award. They teach at Columbia University in New York City and Sandberg Art Institute in Amsterdam. Now, a couple notes about this conversation with CA that I think are important to mention. Well, one thing for sure is to listen for the crows. While I got to do this conversation with CA on Zoom, they were sitting kind of on one side of the frame, and I had a direct view through their window behind them. And as it turns out, uh... CA has this family of crows that visits their windowsill on the second or third floor of their home. And these crows were flying in during the whole conversation in the background, like this like flash of black. And CA talked with me some about the, the animal and how it matters to them. But it's just a cool presence, especially with some of the connections to the eco conversation and animal life that we share in this episode. So listen for the crows. And then also at one point in our conversation, we talk about CA's murdered lover earth. I I did a lot. I did as much as I could to get to know CA beforehand. and, And that included reading a ton of their poetry, but also I watched a documentary which you can rent on Amazon, but the movie is called The Book of Conrad. And while it's about CA, it's also an introduction to the death of CA's boyfriend, Earth, and spends a lot of time trying to unravel the mystery of Earth's death. So I, I do recommend that documentary if you get a chance. And I do want you to know that that's what we're talking about when CA mentions Earth and that there's a purposeful, important way of knowing that the connection CA makes during this conversation uh, for us around that name of their murdered lover. But so happy to share this conversation with you. I had such a pleasure having it live and listening to it since. And I think you will too. This is C.A. Conrad. Oh, well, I was working for my mother along the highway because she was in trouble with the law a lot and couldn't get a job. And so I was selling flowers from the age of eight to 16. Mm -hmm. It's a very long way of saying that uh, this is how I discovered poetry, because mm. this is the 1970s I'm talking about now. Mm-hmm. And we're talking about 74, 75, 76 in particular were the years that were very important for me for discovering Emily Dickinson and getting into poetry. Mm. But when I but yes, yes, I grew up in this town that had a coffin factory 
I associated that more with work that I didn't want to do than death. Yeah, right. Which comes up later on, years later, about what, you know, what that meant to me then and what it means to me now differently. Mm-hmm. But I, I ran away from where I grew up because I didn't want to work in those factories. Also, I wasn't very welcome. Mm-hmm. You know, I was, I'm queer. It's a very conservative, I would not conservative, a right wing I would say it goes beyond conservative where I grew up. And um, I was, I felt great about that decision leaving Mm -hmm. to be a writer. However, it was, it was the very, it was this, the the belly of uh, the early years of AIDS. Mm -hmm. The poem where I'm saying at the party, everyone traced fingers on their bodies where they preferred to have cancer if they had to have cancer. That was my way as a very young person to tell the audience at poetry readings in the 80s and 90s, how do you feel about this disease? But the fact of the matter is it was preaching to the choir, Ned, because it wasn't the poets I had the problem with. Mm -hmm. In fact, heterosexual poets are without a doubt in my mind about the only heterosexuals I could count on in the 80s and 90s when it came to AIDS. They were there. They absolutely were there. Most straight people were not. I lost many straight friends and watched them, many queer friends who were sick contracting, you know, who were HIV positive losing straight friends. It was abysmal. It's something that doesn't get talked about, by the way. Yeah, I've... definitely got that from reading some of your your work this particularly kind of that article that you sent me um where you talk about that one particular friend running into them and that almost like seeing them right let you complete that seven year uh article when i ran into her on the street in uh late 2019 when i was trying to write this essay on aids She was with her daughter, who is in grad school now. I don't know what the story is. And I decided to confront her by telling her daughter what she did on the street. Because the problem was she was acting like, oh, it's so nice to see you after all these years. I said, oh, really? And I just addressed everything to the daughter. I said, if you love your friends, you need to treat them like family. And don't do what your mother did, which is abandon your friends. You know, I, I find that moment so powerful. It reminds me of the bubbles. Oh, sure. The- in my book, uh, While Standing in Line for Death, my last book from Wave Books, I have a ritual called Queer Bubbles. I was in North Carolina. There was a law at the time. It's since been overturned, which is th- I'm grateful for that. But, of course, anybody paying attention to the news realizes that currently the United States is... <sighs> It's like we're under siege all the time in the LGBTQ community. There are even more anti-trans laws going on. I don't want to get into that right now. Let's stick to this Queer Bubbles one. So, yeah, uh, the idea was this HB2 law, which was aggressively anti-trans, anti-queer, basically telling anybody who was queer or trans in the state of North Carolina that you are, in fact, subhuman. That's what you are. You're not a true human being. Terrible things were happening down there. And this is just a few years ago. This isn't like, you know, the 80s. 
Mm-hmm. This is just a few years ago. This was mm-hmm. happening. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I, I'm older now. You know, I'm in my mid to late, going into my late 50s. I don't have a lot of patience for people acting homophobic is the word. I prefer the word heterosexual violence myself. Yes. I don't think the word homophobia is correct because um, it's not a phobia. When you compare that to other words that are phobias, it's it's a t- true insult. Yeah, right. Totally. To the human beings, you're supposedly homophobic. It's it's basically a it's a way of legitimizing panic and killing gay people. The word homophobia. I feel like it opens the word homophobia opens the door for murdering queers. Yeah, it's like if I said you if you had an arachnophobia, there's something kind of like apologetic for you. Absolutely. Like, I'm sorry you have that. Like, you have a fear of spiders. Well, here's what it's called. And boy, I boy, what a hard thing to deal with. I know. And so to add you. the phobia on the end of, yeah. But I replace it with the term heterosexual violence mm-hmm. because it puts the violence back where it belongs. It is a tool and it has been for many centuries and it's been a very successful tool. But queer bubbles is part of this. This is confronting that. And this is an extremely right wing, um, the wrong kind of Christians. I've got friends who are Christians who are really lovely, kind, decent people. But these are not those people I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. And um, I decided to do a ritual that was confrontational in a new way where I positioned myself where I was low to the ground, blowing bubbles and all, their, all these little kids came around. This is in Asheville, this so-called liberal city. It's not that liberal. And um, it's more neoliberal than anything. It's certainly not progressive like people think it is. And when the little kids came over, they were just being kids playing with bubbles. But when their parents would come over, I would explain to them that they were queer bubbles and they were going to turn their children queer. And some of the parents were fine. They were like, oh, I don't care. I'll support my child no matter what. The true Asheville hippie kind of response, right? Mm -hmm. I knew that was going to happen, and I was really grateful to meet them. Mm. But the majority of the parents were not acting that way at all. They were very upset. Mm -hmm. And um, as they were yanking their kids away from me, I was talking with them. What are you going to do if your kid is queer? Are you going to yank them away from that? I mean, what do you you expect is going to happen? Yeah. Yeah, if you're pulling them away to like go give them ice cream because someone just said this little bubble is a queer bubble, what will you do when it's more than that? And how are you going to deal with the fact that you are not willing to even talk to me about a law that that just completely dehumanizes an entire group of people? Do you think about, I imagine your poetry has a a youthful audience. Um, Do you have that sense? I mean, it's mostly young because poets, okay, I'll just say it. It's a really hard thing for people to hear. 95% of all the poets I've known in, in all these long years have stopped. It's a terrible thing. And it is not something that they choose. It's not something that they enjoy. I've yet to meet one of them who says, oh, I'm so glad I don't write poetry anymore. Mm-hmm. That is a death. And that is one of the most important things to talk about, I think, about life, which is creativity. Mm-hmm. You know, the doctors, the American Medical Association, but also the World Health Organization would agree 
from the medical textbook understanding that we have five legitimate, so-called legitimate vital organs in our body, that if one of them goes, everything goes. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I believe that the sixth organ is creativity. Mm. And I believe that people who let their creativity die, and I mean everybody, not just the poets I've known, because every single living human being is creative. Just, just, just get a group of kids together, little kids, and give them crayons and paper and see what happens. Mm-hmm. You don't have to do anything. Mm-hmm. Um, the death of creativity is the slowest form of death on the planet. Because if you don't have your creative core working, mm-hmm. you're not going to really be able to understand what true survival is. Mm-hmm. Like, how are you going to know what to do? We need to encourage everybody to be creative. They are already. Just use the imagination. Do you feel that the, this death of this 95% is a higher death rate than usual? I think, I think creativity in general, this is an issue in this culture we're living in. We're living in this world that demands so much. Capitalism is, um, without a doubt, the true poison. I think the two great deaths of this planet are capitalism and monotheism. Monotheism, in my opinion, set the whole thing up to happen exactly the way it is. Now, granted, I'm basing this on a little window that I can look through from my childhood. But the more I looked into it, the more I realized it is the picture of how many people feel. Meaning... That when I was a child, I went to church with my grandmother. And this is Pentecostal Baptist Church. And there were, this is in the 70s, there were a group of concerned environmentalists, I guess you could call them, who were considering trying to get a recycling program in the county where I grew up. I mean, this, is, this, was, this was radical back then. But it was really just a place where you can bring bring things. There was no mandatory. There's no <laughs> yeah, mandate. Right. Right. And you would have thought that the Soviet Union had just invaded us. They thought World War Three had just happened. And the pastor at church that Sunday used the entire sermon's opportunity to address them by saying the refrain Don't they know Jesus is coming? This pastor always had a refrain because many of the congregation were only functionally literate. So the refrain got everybody involved and and he would use a certain tone. Don't they know Jesus is coming? And everybody would look at him and go, oh, that's the word for this, this is the sentence. And then they would say it along. And the truth of the matter is that it's dangerous, this idea. Because then he starts quoting the book of Genesis and saying, God gave us this world to do whatever we wanted to these animals and to the land. These people need to mind their own business. God is our authority. And that is very scary. I think that there are ways of viewing the Bible that make you see that actually maybe the Bible wanted you. I don't believe I'm, I'm not a Christian, um, but I think that there are definitely ways that you can view the Bible they say that you should be a good steward. Mm-hmm. You should take care of the planet and the animals, mm-hmm. the land. There's only one 
picture. I was using my phone because I was just so overwhelmed reading all your, your poetry and taking pictures of poems that I wanted to talk about with you, or at least the ones that really struck me. But the only only text that I took a picture of that was like a paragraph of some of your introductions or any of that particular kind of content was that paragraph that talks about what you just referenced. And I really am struck by that because there's a way that I relate over these 10 years or so in the death and dying space and making room for people to acknowledge that eventuality as community. And people often will ask or wonder about the, let's talk about afterlife. Have you ever thought about doing like a, what happens when you die event or whatever? And I feel a real resistance to it. And you put better words to it than I ever had, because I think just like what you described, how the, the, this monotheism uh, undermines what it means to take care of a planet that could very well not be ours forever, but we're still maybe taking care of it because something is uh, in the future that deserves us to care for this place, even if humans die, you know, eventually they will. But that in the same way, uh, it undermines the power of our mortality. And just like you said, if Jesus is coming tomorrow, why do we even need to talk about death and really make room for grief? We're all going to be together anyway. So what the hell? I really felt strongly about your wording for that. I really appreciate that, that paragraph. Thanks for bringing that Thanks. up. Thanks. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, that is what it's saying, right? I mean, that's the idea. Yeah. We don't need to be worried about anything but heaven. Yeah. Even grief though, you know, it's like to be like, if we're all going to be together, then why make room for all that sad you know, all that sadness and that heartbreak and loss. There's no such thing if there's eternity together. No, but inside of that very conversation is where certain things get weaponized, right? Right, the threat. Um, the body. The body is immediately a problem in this story. Mm -hmm. When you're thinking about the fact that you are going, you are, we are, are all expendable because we are all here anyway. These are just little borrowed moments, these bodies. Mm -hmm. But it also is a way of weaponizing the body in general. Homophobia is a weapon from the church. Mm -hmm. It was created to control because they understood very early on that most people have somewhat, they've got bisexual tendencies. So if you create this, this sort of, heterosexual violence saying that that is that is ungodly and dangerous and a mortal sin what well, gets everybody policing their own bodies and everybody else's bodies it's it is a true police state that the church created by doing that yeah i mean the word faggot comes from burning gay men at the stake they became synonymous with the faggots the bundles of sticks which is what the definition of faggots is mm -hmm. that's during the inquisition mm-hmm the slur faggot comes from the Inquisition and most people don't even realize it. And if you think about that and then jump to 1982, AIDS is, there are about a thousand people dead of AIDS at this point. And Ronald Reagan's press secretary is asked about AIDS and he literally makes gay jokes. They're talking about a thousand deaths they're about to become millions. There are now as many as 33 million people who have died of AIDS. And it was a big joke. And it's because 
we were so completely, thoroughly, successfully dehumanized. Hey, everybody. Hope you're enjoying this episode of the podcast. Wanted to take a few moments to say a little bit about our sponsor. This episode is sponsored by The Lost Church. Okay, I'm going to give you my heartfelt story about The Lost Church before I tell you a little more details officially about what they do. My introduction to The Lost Church is because of the heart of you're going to die. The heart of you're going to die, I often tell people, is our open mic. It's something that's been happening, some version of it since 2009. It's called You're Going to Die, Poetry, Prose, and Everything Goes. And we do it online right now until we can do it live. And maybe we'll always do one online every now and then. But it's a space for people to gather and share from their heart what they're going through and how it connects to the experience of being mortal. So loss, grief, uh, but also joy. Uh, it's a creative space, not just for artists, but also for general community. And that events happened at a lot of places over the years, but it got to a space called Viracocha. And that's really where the open mic came into being fully in this mortality conversation right around the time my mother-in-law died, 2011, 2012. I also started to get clear during that stage, or at least moving forward from that moment, about who I am as a host and a facilitator, the beginnings of that for me. And so we did it at Viracocha for a while, but Viracocha eventually closed. What I love about Viracocha and what really got clear for me about the venues I want to do our open mic at is that it's spaces where half of your experience in the show has happened to you just because you walked through the front door. And so when I left Viracocha, knowing that, because that's what Viracocha was for me and for the event, I knew exactly what I wanted. I knew it by just walking into a venue and feeling what I feel when I walk into spaces uh, like that. And so the next space where I found it was the Lost Church on Cap Street in the heart of San Francisco's Mission District. And so for the last few years, that's where the open mic has been. And it did have us end up there because of that feeling and the effect, the architecture and the aesthetic and the lighting and the vibe generally that the, the effect all those things has on me or an audience member or an artist and performer. But also one other precious part of the Lost Church experience, and, I, and again, something I learned from the Viracocha venue, is that it's a community connection space. It's not just a venue where you go and they could care less about who you are, just have your night and see you later. It's the kind of venue that wants to create a relationship with you. And that's what happened for You're Going to Die and the Lost Church. They formed a, a relationship and they've been connected and interwoven in so many ways since then. And part of that is manifest in the friendship I have with those people that started it and the people that run it and the people that manage the spaces. And so that's all to say from the heart, this sponsorship is really special to me 
for all those years and all the reasons that packed those years. And then for you to understand why it matters to know about the Lost Church, it isn't just a venue. It's a movement, a nonprofit organization, a declaration, if you will, to sustain and defend and create spaces like it. And so let me put it to you this way, like it's been put to me. Imagine if the YMCA uh, decided to start making venues for the public affordable and all over the place. And that's what the Lost Church is up to. And so we are so lucky they've survived this time, this crazy pandemic time, especially being in a, an event and venue organization, how hard this stretch has been to know they're here. And so then more necessary and precious than ever to have their work and mission in the world happening. And so the idea, wherever you are even, is maybe that you knowing about them and going to the website, thelostchurch.com, and contributing to the organization and seeing what they're up to online right now and finding out when their calendar is going to start populating with live events and finding out when their next venue is opening up, because they will, you're actually committing and connecting to something that I think is needed more than ever for artists and performers. It's always been needed. These venues are precious and, and sweet and communal, and they're not the next 500-seat theater. They're the kind of venue that so many artists need that seat 50 to 100 to 150 people. And those venues have closed down all over the country and the world. Those kinds of venues have suffered and died during this time. And there's some still out there, but the Lost Church is here to stay, to keep creating those kinds of spaces. And in the wake of what we just lived through, they are needed more than ever. So I can't say it enough. Thank you to the Lost Church for your sponsorship for all the years of connecting and supporting You're Going to Die. So proud to have you as a sponsor right now. And for you listening, find out more about the Lost Church and what they're up to at thelostchurch.com. Go and support them and tell them You're Going to Die sent you. In this episode, C.A. and I talk about their work, their most recent collection of poetry titled Amanda Paradise. And the poems in Amanda Paradise, it's called Amanda Paradise Resurrect Extinct Vibration. Um, the poems in that collection reach out from a, a somatic poetry ritual where CA flooded their body with the field recordings of recently extinct animals. So foundational in the collection are the memories of loved ones who died of AIDS, the daily struggle of existing through the coronavirus pandemic and the effort to arrive at a new way of falling in love with the world as it is, not as it was. And so I asked CA if they would let me know which recordings, which animals did they lay with, I mean, literally lay with to create from and out of. And so CA sent a 
bunch of those animal sounds over. And we wanted to give you a chance to listen to them in a little music boat crafted by producer Nick Jaina. single human ambition cultivated by fear of death. That is what helped me understand the next ritual with extinct animals. This man who I love named changed his name to Earth, after all. He was not just an AIDS activist, he was also an environmental activist. So while I was in the middle of doing this ritual, I had this moment, and it, and it was the day that I wrote that poem, where I said that about <clears throat> the fear of death is everything. I was on the, sitting on the floor of the forest in New Hampshire, and this epiphany came to me, this realization. For the first time, I realized, <clears throat> oh my God, he changed his name to Earth at a time when the Earth was being raped, tortured, and burned, scorched by humans. And that is exactly what his rapist, torturers, and killers did to him. He went out of this world the way that the earth is, is leaving us right now. And I mean, the world is very quickly desertifying, becoming a desert, scorching because of our actions, our activities. And so when I realized that, I was like, oh, oh no. How many, how many of our ambitions are rooted in our fear of death? And my answer is all of them. I think every single ambition is in some way connected to being afraid of death. The severe competitiveness amongst artists that you will see sometimes, or anybody really, it's just a fear of not getting it, not being the one, not living it in, not living it up. And so from that point, I said, you know what? I want to do the next ritual 
thinking about that, thinking about all these animals who had disappeared. So in my lifetime, in the past half century, human beings have successfully destroyed 70% of the wild creatures on the planet. Well, the entomologists, mammologists, ornithologists, all these people who study birds, insects, mammals, reptiles, they had no idea, but all of their recordings, their videos, their audio recordings were soon to become tombs on the internet of all these creatures, like the dusky seaside sparrow who became extinct in 1988. Many creatures who have just become extinct this year and last year and the year before. They live on the internet. So it's thinking two things. One, it's very important for us right now to fall in love with the world all over again with the way it is instead of the way it was. We've got to fall in love with what's here, not, not focus on what we've lost. We're not getting back those creatures. They're not coming back. Any more than all the people we know who died of COVID-19 or AIDS are coming back or who died of anything for that matter. So to go forward is to really think about, well, how do I fall in love with this world again? That's difficult. Very difficult, but it's got to happen because if we're really going to save things, stop this hemorrhaging wound on the planet, we've got to love it for what it is now. So what I was doing is as I drive around the United States, I've been living on the road for eight years. I left Philadelphia eight years ago and I travel around the United States. Well, actually in, in the fall, I'm often in Europe teaching, uh, teaching in Amsterdam at the Sandberg Art Institute. And, but, but I drive around the United States all year round, basically. And, or I had before COVID in the lockdown. And when I was on the road, I would go wherever I was at, I would stop and um, I would take these field recordings and I would lie flat on the ground and I would flood my body, not just my ears, my whole body with these recordings, these little speakers. And then I would write. And I'll be honest with you, Ned, I was convinced it was going to be horrifying. Mm -hmm. And it actually turned out to be a very beautiful experience. Was it ever horrifying? The ongoing research was horrifying. When I was seeing what was being written about what was going on, what was not happening Mm -hmm. that needed to happen. Mm There are so many things we can do right now that are exciting. Uh, there's a documentary, it's on Netflix right now, called Kiss the Ground. And um, Woody Harrelson is uh, the narrator. It's one of the few documentaries about the climate crisis that show us very clear ways of turning it around right now. Mm-hmm. The biggest one is that we're, we're destroying the land by tilling it every year. When the farmers till the land and chop the soil up, they're killing all the microorganisms. The greenhouse gases are emitted and released. And, but then in June, when their plants that they planted are growing, it takes the, the atmosphere changes and gets better. What if we begin changing the way we farm and not chop the ground up and keep all those roots? For instance, one of the things that people need to understand is 
we are going to die. We've only got maybe 60 years left of this, they're, they're thinking, to turn it around. And that means we've got to do it, and we can. Can you describe in detail one place you laid and oh, yeah. what one animal you listened to there and one poem that came out of it? I, okay, there were many places. The thing is that I was doing was I wasn't just lying on the ground where it was safe all the time. I would do it in walkways where human beings would have to walk. Not completely obstructing if they could go around me. But, but then presence. I wanted them to know what I was doing. Yes. And my, one of my favorites was this little girl. And she came over while I was lying down there. And I had my sunglasses on because it was very bright. And she stood over my head and looked down and she started, my eyes were closed. I was listening to these recordings and she said, what are you listening to? And I said, you know, like a child, she's very curious. And I said, <laughs> oh, um, haunted animals. I said, oh, that's nice. And she's like um, talking to me. And then I hear her mother yelling, Crystal, get over here. Crystal. And we're talking and she said, what is that? And I said, your mother's calling you. She's like, I know, I heard her. <laughs> and it just kept going. And I said, you're a rebel. What's a rebel? I said, you should go ask your mom. <laughs> I said, you keep being a rebel. I love it. I just, this way you talk through kids to the adults. I don't know if you think about it like that, but that's what I mean. That's what I meant when I was talking about poetry for youth, like that there's a way that your ritual and some, some uh, often is about engaging through that kind of communication line, going with other generations and being direct and then especially making sure that message gets to the adult through them. Well, that's true. I never thought of it that way with her, but you're right, I guess, because she probably did go back and say, what's a rebel? <laughs> totally. totally. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to go back to the poem that the, the line is, it is good to take it easy on days when we remember we are going to die. How do you uh, take it easy on those days? <laughs> Or do you? <clears throat> yeah, that's the thing. It's 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 sort of like reminding yourself when you're getting upset about maybe somebody said something stupid about you. You just want to let go of it. And what you do is you you realize, yeah, this is I'm not going to tie myself down to this. There have been too many people for too many years in my life who have died and they're not going to be here to deal with anything anymore, at least in this life time. So, um, I think I should just relax. Uh, Martin Shaw has this great quote that's really coming up for me a lot. And it is, uh, his quote is, if you don't have ancestors, you have ghosts. Mm. Oh, I like that. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like, like this most recent book coming out in September is a way of using ritual and writing to help earth be more of an ancestor or is there maybe less specific? Is there a way the what you do and what you've been able to do with this writing and these rituals is a way of making these ghosts into ancestors? Well, you know, the thing is about the new book coming out, it takes my boyfriend earth's name and his situation and takes it into the larger context of the earth itself and so what I'm doing in that sense is going from healing my depression from his 
death into the larger death. Mm. Mm-hmm. This massive, massive, massive extinction we are all part of right now. And um, <clears throat> it was, it, those are ghosts for sure. Those animals are here. In fact, let me just say this. Um, when I was out there traveling around the United States, listening to these extinct creatures sounds, I was prepared to become depressed, possibly wounded in depression. From yeah, doing haunted. This. Yeah. But the fact of the matter is the absolute opposite happened because hauntings don't always have to be some Hollywood version of scary, you know, hauntings can be many things. And I believe that the scientists who have recorded these creatures, studying them, not realizing that they were all going to be wiped out. I wonder how these scientists feel. That's who we should be talking to. The scientists who are still alive, who took these recordings and the animals are gone. I mean, talk about being haunted. But the haunting isn't so bad. It's sort of almost a message like this. This is not the end. My molecules are here. And other things now. Yours will also be in other things one day. But right now you have an opportunity to do something. And I was like, oh, what is that? Hmm. And I felt when I was finished it, that the thing that I have to do that I'm good at in this is to encourage creativity. Because to encourage creativity is to encourage minds to expand that can incorporate these things a little easier. The more creative a person is, the the wider their ability, their, their wider their wide their 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 bandwidth is of accepting and dealing. And um, there are many examples of how creativity can change our lives. What would your step by step? I imagine like CA's step by step. Okay, here's how you get into the creative ritual. Here's how you get into the creativity. Number one. I mean, can you even list any numbers to help people offer oh, them? Yeah. Okay. I'd love sure, to Let me that. just say this. The thing that, um, the thing that is most helpful when I'm out in the world doing workshops in particular is the personalized somatic ritual. You know, like I designed one around, I always design them around my life and what I'm doing. How else can you do them? Or you can do them to be in a life you don't even know you have. Mm-hmm. That's a other ton of ritual, right? Mm-hmm. But the thing that's most important is to take people's lives exactly as they are. It's one thing to make a ritual for people, something happy. Everybody wants to do some kind of happy ritual, you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. I understand that. But if, it, if you allow us to work on a ritual for something that's blocking you or that's troubling that is where the key is because if you can write inside that structure, you're free. And sometimes people just don't know how to do it. And and it's because the culture we're living in is designed to destroy creativity. We're designed in this culture to obey, to consume, to work, 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 consume, work, 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 consume. That's it. But also like I think what might connect to this is this turning off the dark part. You, you, you even said, I think earlier, something about you really let the dark in to be able to finally get the release that the ritual could offer. You have to sometimes be willing to go to the worst place. 
But here's an example. Okay, so I had the I was uh, I had this wonderful thing. I was commissioned by the in New York City by Madison Square Garden Park, uh, the the actual park, Madison Square Garden Park, the outdoor park, and <clears throat> the Poets House. This was a few years ago, and they said, "Here, we want you to spend a week in the park, and we're gonna." This is in the summertime. They're like, "You can do whatever you want. We want to build a stage." And I said, "Well, I just want a small table and two chairs." And they said, "Oh, well, all right. What do you want to do?" And I said, "I just want to sit with people and create rituals for them that are just for them." And uh, I only had fifteen minutes per person. And I gave them this little handout that would explain like how to take the notes, how it's easier to do that. So I didn't have to talk about that. And my email was on there in case they needed to ask me questions. And of course there were plenty of questions, but I had this woman come to me and who was a little bit older than I am. And half of her head was shaved and there was a scar with staples holding the flesh together. And she had brain cancer and so this is in June. She was told that she would most likely die before the end of October. But in several weeks, she was going to have an experimental surgery to relieve pressure on her brain so that she wouldn't suffer something like that. I don't know. I'm trying to remember exactly. It was so short, but she was having some kind of surgery to alleviate suffering. That much I know. And I said, okay, well, what did you do? What, I mean, what kind of activities do you do? What kind of creativity have you done? She's like, well, my job was, she was a drafts person. She was a technical drawer, which for people don't understand, that's kind of a job that's mostly obsolete now, maybe with computers, but she's basically drawing diagrams and things for engineers and textbooks, right? Nuts and bolts and screws and all that stuff. I said, that's perfect. Let's use, let's use those skills. Mm-hmm. I want you to go home, call the doctor's office, and find out every single thing that's going to be used in this surgery. And then I want you to draw tiny little drawings of each of these things. Whatever it is, a tongue depressor, uh, a syringe, a scalpel, a gurney, masks, you know what I mean? Whatever, gloves. And then you're going to take each of these drawings and you're going to treat them. And you're going to write while you're doing this. You'll shit on them, vomit on them, bleed on them, cook with them, cook them themselves, chop them up and cook them and eat them, dream with them under your pillow. And then her daughter contacted me after her mother died. Well, the thing is, she wanted to write a poem for her daughter who came home from grad school to help her die. And I said, okay, well, let's do this. And then she did. She wrote a poem. And her daughter contacted me to say, you know, my mother was really grateful for this. And I just wanted you to know she wrote a poem. And yeah. Hmm. Thank you. I really appreciate that <clears throat> encouragement. This, this thing we've touched on throughout our conversation, this like where, start with where you are. Start with who you are and what you do. Exactly who you are and exactly where you are now. And whatever is the, the part of that answer, what is going on now and who you are now, that is not feeling like your favorite thing about now and your life. That's the thing you should build the ritual around. 
I don't often use the word should, but I will in this case, because if you do that, you're going to be able to focus on anything you want. Here's something very important about this. I just have to say this. This is something that needs to be talked about. And all these decades of writing poetry, I've met so many poets and other artists who tell me that when they're depressed is when they get do their best work. I understand that. I understand why they say that. But here's the thing. I believe our thinking about it is the problem. Just bear with me. So this culture we're living in is just designed to just be nonstop work. You know, got to get up in the morning, have your breakfast, get ready and you go to your job. Right. But when we're living our lives and doing all these things, these routines that we have when we're going through our lives, unimpeded going through our lives, right, living our lives, it's one thing. But when tragedy strikes, when somebody you love doesn't speak to you anymore or somebody is suddenly in the emergency room of a hospital, that is when the people say they, they can write, when they're depressed. Oh, I can write now. So, you know, yeah. Why? Why, though? Why? Because when you were busy living your life without the tragedy, you were focused on many things. But as soon as this tragedy occurs, everything stops and you focus on that tragedy. So that's why you feel you're focused to write or create art because of the focus the depression gives you. Let's be clear about it. It's the focus of the depression, not the depression mm-hmm. itself. Mm-hmm. That That is very important. And if you can understand that, you realize that you can build a focus around any subject you want mm-hmm. and stop hindering your happiness and your life with this idea that you need the depression to create. It's just the same lie that we're told about alcohol and drugs. That alcohol and drugs are really good for the poet. It loosens the tongue, you're told. I was told that so often as a teenager by these older poets. Wine in the evening. I drink a little wine and it loosens the tongue. And the people telling me this are raging alcoholics. I thought to myself, absolutely not. Then you knew. Then you uh, knew. Uh, oh, yeah. Like, no, no, back then I was like, oh, right. my God, I'm not going to become you. <laughs> yeah, all right. Spend another minute on the masquerade of the puppet show that the master made and pull another thread through the silken cloth like the flapping wings of the milkweed moth. Write the first story on the miracle of the slowest animal alive.
say anything else i'm just going to jump right into this nick jana nick jana how are you <laughs> good <laughs> good good uh do you want to share this would be a nice like leap from the song we just heard to what it was like to work on this conversation with ca yeah well yeah so that was my song <clears throat> my name's nick jana i produce this podcast and i made that song <laughs> You want me to, am I, have I been forgetting to say, I just, I'm just trying just to assume context. people know, it's just, just context. thousands and thousands of people know. Um, this isn't 60 minutes. It's good. not like they're testing like, oh. one. We're going to cue the cards <laughs> and restart. Hey, uh, before I kind of jump into this, you know, I might as well just Nick Jana, Hi. producer of the podcast. How are you? I'm great. Doing great. <laughs> so good to hear you. <laughs> oh, so I, I said this already, but I realized we've started over. So uh, I think a great thing to hear right now would be your uh, speaking to the song we just heard and then transition from that to what it was like for you to work on CA's conversation with me. Yeah. So that, that was my song uh, that you just heard. It's called <laughs> <laughs> The Slowest Animal Alive. <clears throat> mm -hmm, uh, favorite. It's a song that I wrote uh, when I learned the fact that 95% of the original Redwoods were cut down. So mm -hmm. like what we can go see now is only 5% of what was there, you know, 200 years ago. Um, yeah. And dealing with that like intense grief that we should probably have a different name for it because it's like the grief of um great loss of of species or you know i mean they're not mm -hmm. extinct of course but just to imagine what would california look like with all of those trees and just the, just feeling that sense of loss and then yeah ca I, I love what they're talking about of just like listening to these sounds and laying on the ground and and literally grounding yourself and connecting yourself and tr and trying to get in people's way as they're walking and kind of forcing a conversation of people saying what are you listening to well i'm listening to the <laughs> this mm -hmm. extinct species of bird you know you know the thought i had when i heard that uh 95 of the redwood trees were cut down is i don't think anybody paid a fine or got in trouble for that you know mm -hmm. like all the things that are a crime or that people can go to jail for somehow great colossal crimes against nature are, you don't even know the name of somebody who did it or who was responsible. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just, it just happens through just a basic a functioning of humanity apparently. And that's, what's so sad to me is it's not, there's no, like, I don't think any like congressional hearings about, uh, you know, justice for the redwoods or anything like, you know, like there's no, you think the adults are going to be in charge, but then you realize that they don't actually take care of things like this that matter so much. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Did you write that song, like, or writing that song? Did you lay with the redwoods or sit with the trees? Well, at the time, I was uh, living briefly in Boulder Creek, north of Santa Cruz and the Santa Cruz Mountains, working mm -hmm. on this uh, immersive exhibit called Spectrum with my friends. The conceit behind it was this eccentric, immortal alchemist had created this immersive exhibit in the mountains of Santa Cruz because as a, as an immortal person, he identified with the Redwoods who are essentially immortal as far as we could ever understand, you know, but because he was European and he mostly lived before plane travel, he only heard about the Redwoods. He never got to go visit them. So he had this mm -hmm. great grief of feeling like the, 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 the only creatures in the world that he resonated with were halfway around the world and he couldn't see them. Mm -hmm. And so th this is all this conceit behind this um, exhibit is that then he designed this exhibit that people could go in and, and appreciate life, the, the span of life and then exit and then be in, in the redwoods. Wow. It ended up not getting used for that <laughs> exhibit. Cause it was it, <laughs> the song, the song didn't get used for that. I put yeah, it on an right. album, but like it, it ended up being a, uh, an exhibit that didn't need songs with lyrics. Um, but that mm. was the original intent of it. Yeah. Mm. Well, it is one of my favorites. Thanks for letting us share it with the listeners today. Thank you. So we, uh, I got some good news, Nick. Yeah. We, we, uh, we blasted the roof off the top of this thing and uh, rocketed past 100 ratings oh. uh, this last couple of weeks <laughs> on Apple Podcasts. Nice. Um, just, just like spontaneously respond, like, how are your emotions? What are you feeling? Like, what are the thoughts running through your head? Uh, I want to thank my parents and just <laughs> Mrs. Baldwin, my third grade teacher. That's just where my thoughts are going. She was always so supportive of my creativity and, oh shoot, they're playing me off. <laughs> God, this goes so much faster than you would ever think. Okay. Bye. Love you. <laughs> Congratulations, Nick. We all love you. Um, Great job, everybody. We did it. Uh, yeah, it, I know it's like a joke and it's just nice. It's just a nice measurement. I think that Nick and I, I'll speak for us both. And Nick, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it's a wonderful project and a medium we love. love. And it's also, <laughs> what's that? Damn it. I thought for sure I was headed in the right direction with that. All right. Well, we both disagree. I, I think we do agree. This is that, plan Z uh, for me. This is a lark. This is plan Z. This is the late the last plan. Well, I'm glad that we've arrived here at Plan Z. So I want to remind you that we're out here and would love to get your stories, field your questions, uh, read your poetry, um, send us recordings. I mean, really, you could be as creative as you want, but let's say for the purposes of this particular podcast uh, invitation. Uh, yeah, send us some questions, you know, email us some questions. You can what, what is our pod at YG2D.com? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> You're asking me? Jesus. <laughs> I, th I, I just, I can't remember what the email address is. I thought you were is. like asking your own brain. Uh, you can, you can send us anything you want to pod at YG2D.com. And uh, yes, please also keep rating, keep supporting, keep sharing. Uh, we love that you are and um, just real glad to be able to do this thing and put it in your ears. Um, Nick, I wanted to ask you a real quick question. Mm -hmm. Do you think just dawned on me? I was reading a book, uh, the other day and I was like, you know what? Nick and I might be Calvin and Hobbes. <laughs> Wait, do you feel like that we have energetically a dynamic that is similar to their 
dynamic? That means one of us is imaginary. I mean, that's definitely debatable, depending on your feelings about Calvin and Hobbes. Who, Let's just assume they're both real. Who, who do, uh, do you think one of us is uh, one or the other? Yeah, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll <laughs> whoa, see you uh, next time. Dang, I messed it up. <laughs> uh, no, just think about it. And get back to me if there's anything that aligns for you. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Well, I, we don't need to. <laughs> we don't need to include. We don't need to include this Calvin and Hobbes bit, but it is something I've been wanting to ask you. We just drop that bomb. And then... <laughs> it's a bomb, <laughs> explosive. I think both characters are highly valuable in their own unique ways. Oh yeah, no, I love them. And sometimes I'd like to be imaginary, so I'm not going to say which one. You are, but I w would like you to think about it and contemplate or consider the possibility that those two characters are a good match for our dynamic. I think of Calvin as somebody who has a lot of anger issues and also <laughs> is like too smart for his own good. <laughs> Great. And is kind of like uh, imprisoned in a, in a place beneath <laughs> him because he can't. Am I going too far with this? Am I too, taking this too literally? <laughs> Oh man, and then Hobbes is is basically an enabler, you know, which is not always a bad thing. But like, he's like greases the wheels for some like serious mischief to happen. But then totally is ultimately like uh, like everyone needs like a sounding board to like bounce ideas off of. So like mm -hmm. Hobbes is a Hobbes is just a well, no, he isn't just, but like he's a, he's a great he's kind of like a like a Socratic you know dialogue partner is how I see him. Mm -hmm. Like he, he, he helps yeah. Calvin to delve deeper into like real, the real shit, you know? Everything you're saying is just spot is that what on you were, for what I've been That's what you were thinking? About our dynamic, yeah. Or is it just that I'm blonde and he's blonde? <laughs> As I said it out loud, I was like, he's just going to think, well, I guess I look like Calvin the most. Um, I also wanted to ask you about the meditation and um, which I love. Thank you. That mm -hmm. is such a beautiful segment. And so glad CA was able to share the animal recordings with us to use for the episode. And we better take a moment to hear what those animals were. Yeah, it's a pretty cool assignment to receive. CA pointed us in the direction of these recordings of extinct animals. There was the Hawaii Akipa and the Dusky Seaside Sparrow, both birds um, calling out to their mates that went unanswered. <laughs> Incredibly heartbreaking <laughs> and not, and not at all funny. I just like laughably devastatingly heartbreaking. <laughs> no, oh. it really is. <laughs> it's true. Everything I said is true. It's just... I know. I know. I just don't know how this ends. He keeps ending up with laughter. Uh, no, at the end of this. Well, a laughter is, is is uh i know what laughter is <laughs> what is laughter because <laughs> I, I don't know how to finish that sentence <laughs> oh oh gosh what um, would you say okay finish this sentence oh god really okay no no first thought best no, thought. go get no, it no i don't want a definition i want poetry laughter is inflating body gasp backward gasping <laughs> backward gasping Drowning. <laughs> Are you okay? <laughs> Drowning. Are you ref reading refrigerator magnet poetry? Drowning for air. Gasping backwards. 
Okay. Laughter is drowning for air. Drowning gasping backwards. For air? Yeah, drowning for air, gasping backwards. Okay. Anyway, so those were recordings of extinct <laughs> birds. And some native cultures believe that extinction is not a thing and animals hide away underground or in some uh, hidden area when uh, humans become too dominant, but they're never really gone. They're just waiting for a moment when it is safe to return. So that's one way to look at it. Mm. Mm. I like that. Laughter is a species who will never go extinct. I don't know about that. Jesus, man. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everybody. I thought you were going to be like, oh, inspiring. You did it again, Nick. You hit it out of the park. You hit it right out of the <laughs> park, Nick. You did it again. Thanks for listening, everybody. All right. Um, bye-bye. Bye-bye.